Mother's Day, and so obviously I thought, well, I could preach something about moms, or motherhood, or parenthood, or um, something related to mothers, and I am going to do that, but I'm going to do it tonight, and if you want to come to that tonight, it's going to really be hopefully an encouraging message, not one that tells moms how they should behave, or what God expects of godly mothers, or something like that, just just. It's hopefully going to be real encouraging to you, and, and so I want to put a little plug in there for this. But I'm kind of taking advantage of my time in the pulpit this morning to talk about something that has um, it's come up often in our church and in conversations that I've had with people, and that is the concept of church membership. And I want to say right off the bat that I realize that in this congregation this morning, uh, there are people who have attended here for a long time who have never become members for one reason or another. And my object this morning is not to make anyone feel uncomfortable or to really zero in on stepping on people's toes, but it comes out of a desire to teach you what the Word of God says about this, because many times when I've had conversations with people about membership when it's come up, the classic answer is, the Bible doesn't say anything about church membership. And so the discussion's over. I don't even want to talk about it. And if God doesn't specifically command me to be a member of a local church, then why should we even have this discussion? And I want to you know, start off by saying that um, it's true. The Bible, there's no proof text. You can't turn to John or Acts or Romans or Ephesians and find thou shalt become a member of a local church. But the concept of membership is throughout the New Testament. And I'd like to share that with you this morning and try to explain it to you and encourage those who are members and those who may not be members to consider what God would have us to do with membership and why. Um, one, of the, one of the things that happens, I think, is that people get um, the idea that becoming a member of a church is, um, it gives you the privilege to vote in annual business meetings. And that's what membership is all about. I'm not even going to touch that, because really that, that has nothing to do with what the New Testament um, has for us as believers to consider about the body and membership within that body. Um, we are incorporated in the state of Massachusetts, and by law, we as a church have to have a membership. That's part of being a corporation, and so we, we offer membership to anybody who comes. And we have to have um, officers within our corporation, president vice president, and, and we have to, those, those offices have to be named in a constitution and so forth, and we do that. But the reason for this message this morning is not to cover the state requirements for corporation. It's to, it's to look at what the New Testament says and what the principles are for church membership and hopefully gain a clearer and better understanding of what that means and, and why membership is so important. You've probably heard this story many times where a person would come into a church, maybe our church, maybe another church, and they start attending, and they come regularly, and they enjoy the music, and they enjoy the preaching and the teaching, and they enjoy the programs of the church, and after some time has passed, inevitably the pastor will knock on the door or make that phone call and say, oh, I've noticed that you've been coming here for a long time. Have you considered joining the church? And these people may or may not be offended by that, but they'll politely decline and say, no, thank you, I'm not, I'm not interested in becoming a member of the church. 
And so maybe the pastor will become a little bit more aggressive in his approach and say, well, you know, church membership has these benefits and, and perhaps, you know, you could, you could join in a little bit more securely if you had your membership and so forth. And the pressure becomes a little bit too much and a month later they leave. And they find another church where they can live out their anonymity a little bit easier um, because they don't um, present themselves to the church as members. Why does this happen? What, what, is, what is the cause behind people just not wanting to join and become a part of a local church? It's boggled me for a while, and there may be some good answers for it. Um, no doubt part of the reason that there's a general lack of interest in church membership is what you might call the commitment phobia of our society today. Nobody really wants to be committed to anything. I should have gotten rid of my uh, screensaver, sorry. Yeah, the battery ran out. Ha-ha. <laughs> so we're going to have to go with that one. So if you could boost that a little without making it scream, that would be great. Um, something that we might call the commitment phobia of our culture, which means that people are just always waiting for a better deal to come along. And maybe some people go to a church and they really like the church and they like the preaching and the pastor and things, but maybe there's something out there that's a little better than this one. And so I don't want to commit myself to this one because if I find a better one, then I won't have to go through the whole process of not becoming a member and blah, 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 you know. And so we just don't commit. And there's a little fear, I think, of people committing to things uh, in general in our society, coupled with consumerism, always looking to get the most for the least. Our country is, and some people in our country are obsessed with that. Christmas tree shop comes to mind. <laughs> right? You get some pretty good deals there for a buck if you're, if you're looking around. But hey, I can come to a church, I can sit in the pew and, and be fed and taught and have fellowship and do everything without committing myself to them. And it, it really, maybe, maybe the consumerism attitude of our society has something to do with that, where we're trying to get as much as we can without giving as much as we can. Some of the blame, I think, really rests on us as teachers in the church, because I don't think we've emphasized it or taught it the way that we should, and a lot of the thoughts that are generated behind the idea of church membership are ambiguous at best. I mean, if I asked you, when, you know, what does church membership mean? What does it signify? What are the responsibilities? Why should we do it in the first place? How many of us could give clear, decisive answers to those questions? Where do we go in the scriptures to find answers to those questions? Does it even say anything? And most often you hear, well, no, it doesn't say anything. And so, so we're, we can't answer those questions. Well, I beg to differ, and that's why I'm here this morning, is to try to teach a little bit about what the scriptures do say uh, about that. Maybe some of you can relate to this objection. If I come and worship here at church as often as the members do, if I fellowship with these believers as much as anybody else does, if I profit from the teaching and the other ministries of the church, and if I actively demonstrate love for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, why should I formally join the church? What's the difference? Why should, I'm doing everything that everybody else does anyway. What's the big deal about church membership? So what does distinguish a member from an attender of the church? Is it just the vote at the annual meeting? 
Are there clear biblical reasons emphasizing membership in the local church? Why would it be better to be a member than simply somebody who comes on a Sunday and enjoys attending church, especially if membership entails further obligation? What does it mean to be a member of our church? What is it that potential members are asked to commit themselves to? And how are members asked to live out that commitment in practical ways? I'd like to start by asking a question, which simply is, what is the church? And um, I think before we consider church membership, it would be good in our minds to be able to establish again, what is the church? What are we talking about? And we'll start with what it's not. Um, the church is not just a loose affiliation of people who come together with the same religious beliefs. It's more than that. It's not just a religious club where we come together and share opinions, our religious opinions with each other, and, and much like a, a golf club would get together and enjoy golfing. We're not a church club where we get together and enjoy churching. Okay? The, the scriptures are, are clear about that. Um, the church, secondly, I think one of the uh, misconceptions in our society in general is that the church is the place you meet. You know, we're at church this morning, right, because we're here. We're in this building. Well, we know and we've been taught pretty well here, I think, that the church is not the building. It's not the place that we meet. Um, so when I say I'm going to church, it's not just that we're coming here to one fellowship way and, and meeting with each other. Uh, neither is the church just a nonprofit. There are a lot of nonprofit organizations out there that have specific missions and do good and, 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 you know, have, and carry out that mission. But the church is more than just a nonprofit organization for religious work. Well, what is it if it's not those things? We've defined the church many different ways. I suppose if you were to go to a, uh, a class on ecclesiology and the study of the church, you would get some real formal definitions of what the church is. But at a minimum, a church is an assembly of people who profess Jesus Christ as Savior at a minimum, right? They've been saved by God's grace alone, and they would agree that their purpose in this life is to give God glory. Um, the second thing is that the church is a body of people who are committed to Jesus Christ. It's a local, living, loving collection of people who are committed to the same thing, and that's to serve Jesus Christ. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that the angels marvel over this, that God has done what he's done in the church, and the church actually becomes a testimony of God's wisdom in bringing so many people with diverse backgrounds, saving them and, and putting them together in a local place where they can work together as a body. And even the angels are mystified by that. And it's a place where we can display what you might call countercultural love. The, the love that we give and receive in, in the church is different than that which is in the world. There's no question about it. And this is, this is where it happens. It happens in um, the local church. And so what do, we come, what do we walk away with from this? Well, the, the thing that I want to be really clear is that the church is not made up of just people who come and attend. The church is made up of people who believe. The church is made up of saved people, people who have trusted in Jesus Christ 
who provided the atoning work on the cross for their sin. And they have, they have come to grips with their own sin, have humbled themselves before God, and have believed in Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sin, and that's where they are. How does the scripture picture the church? There are some real good illustrations in the, in the New Testament of how the church is um, to be thought about. Um, we talked about this this morning in the membership class, by the way. There are, there are two basic ways that the New Testament describes the church. One of them is universal. One of them is local. And by the universal church, we mean anybody, anywhere, from any time, from Pentecost all the way up to the return of Christ, who has been saved is a part of the universal church. So Peter and John are a part of the universal church, the apostles, because they were, they were saved and were saved from Pentecost between now. You and I, if, if we are saved, we are a part of the universal church. People in Alaska, people in Hawaii, people in Africa, people in South America, people in New Zealand who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation are a part of this universal body of Christ, and one day we'll all be together. We will be together in heaven, rejoicing as believers in Christ with God for what he has done. But the expression of the church in the New Testament is more often and most often referring to a local body of believers, which is why the letters in the New Testament were addressed to specific groups. The church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi, and, and you read the first part of uh, Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the, the, the seven churches there were specific churches. It wasn't just addressing the whole universal body of believers who have come to Christ, but it was addressing specific local congregations of people who had come together to meet. And so these illustrations that the scriptures give, I'm going to give you three of them, all refer to that local church, which we are one. You know, we're, we're not the only church in the world. We don't have a corner on the truth. We're believers who meet together here in Methuen to be a testimony for God's grace. Well, what are we? How does, the God, how does God describe us? The first description is that of a building, which kind of goes against what I just said, right? The church is not the building, but an illustration of the church. You can think of it in terms of a building in the sense, and you can look this up, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. The illustration or concept of the church as a building permeates the New Testament. It might use the word temple, it might use the word building. Peter in 2 Peter 2.5 goes so far as to call believers living stones, bricks, or cinder blocks, which are used to build. And each one of us is a brick supported by the bricks below it and supporting the bricks above it. And we're, we're interconnected with each other in that way as a building. Each, each Christian is resting and relying on each other in these local churches. And if we are bricks, living stones, in a building built by God, then no brick should be left out by itself, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's not there. It's not to just be left, left lying around with no place to go. Second illustration is the church is a body. We read this in, in uh, our scripture reading this morning 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The first place that the church is mentioned as a body in the New Testament is Romans 12. So let's go there. Verses 4 and 5. Which says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And this, in, I think the illustration of the body is probably the most popular one that, that we would have recognized right off the bat. If I, if I asked you, how, does the, how is the church described in the New Testament? Well, it's a body. It's the body of Christ. It's a body of believers. And interesting that the New Testament uses the word member. And when I say member of the church, and they say member of the body, it's not necessarily referring to the same thing, although they are quite closely related. Like a, my finger is a member of my body. Right? It's joined to me. And if I cut it off, I would hurt. And I would bleed. And the rest of my body would try to come to the rescue to try to put it back where it belongs. And the members, they're, they're, they're interconnected with one another. That's the, the whole illustration of a body works that way. Um, it's here in the church that individuals come together with a single purpose, which is to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and to edify the saints. Uh, Peter listed through some of those this morning when he went through... Um, his talk on the youth ministry. We're here to know God and to glorify him. We're here to exalt God and to worship him. We're here to engage with each other in fellowship. Uh, we're here to edify one another by teaching one another and discipling one another. We're here to evangelize. And all these purposes come together in the local body. Some are called to teach. Some are called to build. Some are called to counsel. Some are called to work with youth. Some are called to work with senior saints. Some are called to the nursery. Whatever it is, each responsibility contributes to the greater whole. And that's how a body functions, where each individual is a member. When one part of the body is injured, as I mentioned, the whole body is affected. It has to be. If you break your left foot, your right foot compensates so that you can keep moving. And so if, if there's an injury or, or something wrong, we compensate for each other. Um, and not just your right foot, but your back, your arms are used to balance better, and, and your whole body gets involved when there's, when there's something wrong like that. And a local church is the same way. Each member with its gifts and weaknesses compensate and help each other. And in addition to being members, uh, I should say, in addition, being members of a body means that we don't have to run this race alone. We're together with a group who all believe the same things. And we can support each other that way. A healthy body is a powerful tool for God's work. A third illustration is a family. I've termed it up here, God's household, because that's the way it's put in Timothy. If you turn to 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul has been giving instruction to Timothy as to how to teach the church. And he's given multiple instructions in the book to this point. And then he says, if I'm delayed in getting to you, here's what I want you to do. I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the, and here's his word, household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So you think of a household. We each belong to a household. 
And a typical family has mom and dad and kids and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and grandparents, and we're all family, and we're connected together because of our family relationship and our family ties. Well, who is the head of the household of God? It's Christ himself. Colossians 1 makes that clear, that Christ is the head of the body, and we all owe our allegiance and our obedience to him. Who are the children who reside in the household? That'd be us. We, we are the children who belong to this, to, to this family, the men and women who have surrendered to the authority of Christ in their lives and have been adopted into his family through salvation, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, being a part of God's household implies that there's not only a relationship to God himself, but also a relationship to brothers and sisters. We have four kids in our house, and they all relate to, to each other as brothers and sisters, but they also relate to us as parents, and so we, we understand the family relationships and how those work. Um, so these relationships are giving, sharing, and they're binding. My brother's always my brother. My brother just had his birthday on Thursday. I think it was Thursday. I called him. Told him I loved him. I sent him a present and joked around with him a little bit about getting older. He hasn't hit 40 yet like I have. He will next year, so that'll be a big one. And I gave him a little remote helicopter so he could fly it around his living room just for fun. I love my brother. He'll always be my brother. He's been my brother. And when he dies, if he dies before me, I'll, I'll always remember him as my brother. That's who he is. That, that family tie can't be broken. It's binding. And that's the way that the relationship should work in God's household. That's, we're, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are bound together by love and by definition as part of that family. Would God's house have a table without enough places for each child? Well, no, of course not. Um, many churches who do have church membership don't look very united. There might be a lot of people listed on their church membership role, but none of them come. What good is that? You know, that's not, we don't have membership just so we can show off how many people we have. And there are churches like that. You can, you can find churches that have thousands of people on their membership role, but they have you know, 30 people show up on a Sunday morning. Well, where is everybody? Is that a family? No, not really. Church membership is imperfect. It's true, but it's still a powerful sign that God's family is together, united, accountable, and dependable, completely sharing the mind of Christ. And hopefully, as you look at these illustrations, you'll see a pattern that God has for local churches. If we are bricks in a building, how can we not identify with that building? If we are members of a physical body, how can we not be securely attached to that body? If we are called God's children, how can we not be united as a part of his family? Church unity and church membership, the concepts go together. They're the same. It's a, it's a, it's a physical, outward way of expressing what is, what's already happened in the heart and, and living it out. So what is the biblical background for church membership? Uh, aside from the descriptions of the church, does the Bible have anything to say that might lead us to believe that church membership is important? I would say yes, there is. And let me remind you again I can't turn to a single verse, and neither can you. If you can, please help, because I'd like to know it. But I've read through the New Testament a few times. I don't think it's there. There's, there's no command that says, thou shalt be. 
a church member. But the concept of church membership really does permeate the letters that Paul wrote, and even in the book of Acts. Uh, the first one I'd like to look at is the idea of the process of church discipline. And for that, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 5, and you'll see, hopefully, the logic behind this. Verse 2 says, And you have become arrogant and have not mourned, Instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. There, there was a problem in the church at Corinth where, and you can read about it in verse 1, it was reported that there, there was immorality amongst them and they hadn't done anything about it. They just let it exist, um, even that someone had his father's wife. So it was a man who was having immoral relationships with his mother, of all things, on Mother's Day, right? And yet, the church had not done anything about it. So Paul was writing to instruct them as to what to do uh, with this particular person and how to handle it. If you look at verse 7, he says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. For just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also, uh, also has been sacrificed. And then jump down to verses 12 and 13. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So that was Paul's teaching to them as a church. And all I would say is, if Paul is calling for the exclusion of an immoral brother, doesn't that imply that there was something to be included, to be excluded from? What was he being excluded from? It was his place in the local church there in Corinth. It doesn't say membership, but it sure does imply it there. If they, if they had the authority to tell him he was no longer welcome at that, or he had to repent, at least at a minimum, of what he was doing, the exclusion implies inclusion. Uh, there's another verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You turn there where Paul uses a particular word where he references the majority. In verses 6 and 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Again, Paul is writing specifically about an incident that had taken place in the church where there was a person who had been disciplined and had been disciplined for a time and now Paul was saying, it's time for you to stop doing that and welcome him back in and, and forgive him and, and bring him back as a part of, of your church. And so in verses 6 and 7, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by who? The majority. Which again, you know, you have to maybe use a little imagination here, but what was he talking about? If church discipline was being acted out, on this person, and the majority now were to treat him as a brother again and to, and to uh, fulfill that responsibility. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There was a sense in which that person belonged to that body, and, and he was accountable to them, and they were responsible to him. So without membership, how does that work? If a person comes in and just comes into the church... Are they responsible to give an account 
to the leadership of the church? Is the leadership of the church accountable for them? How do we know? It's, it's just, it becomes, at, at least it becomes less clear. Um, a third thing is a keeping of the list of names. There's evidence in the New Testament that this was done. Uh, one of the more clear ones is in 1 Timothy 5.9, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, this is in reference to widows. The instruction for Paul in regard to widows who were uh, not less than 60 years old was this. Let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old. Only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. And, you know, there, there were lists that the apostles kept of names of people so that they could carry out the ministry that they were called to. And here Paul was instructing Timothy to do just that. Put her on the list. What list? A list of names of people, right? So is it legitimate that we as pastors, elders of Fellowship Bible Church should keep lists of names of people to whom we're responsible? Absolutely, yes. That's how we do it. That's how, that's how we communicate with each other and how we, um, um, how we should function. Um, there's also the idea of the letters of recommendation. There's two, two verses for this. One is 1 Corinthians 16.3, if you're keeping notes. The other is 2 Corinthians 3.1. I'm going to go to the 2 Corinthians passage, if you'd like to turn there. Actually, they're pretty close to each other. You can just keep your finger and we'll read both. The letter of recommendation was a letter written by a recognized entity for people who were traveling so that they would have the ability to go somewhere where they didn't know them. Like if I were to travel to Texas to speak at a church, I might carry with me a letter of recommendation from this church which says, yes, he is our assistant pastor, he has this qualification, he's able to speak to you and enjoy him or whatever. You know, there would be a letter of recommendation given by this church because I belong here and they can give testimony to the fact that I do. And Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 3 was taking a different twist on it. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Paul's saying, don't you know us? Don't you know us well enough by now that we don't have to carry a letter of commendation with us when we come to you? In 1 Corinthians 16.3, however, he was promoting giving letters of recommendation or letters of commendation to people who were traveling. He said in verse 3, and when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send, I shall send them with letters to carry with letters, excuse me, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So as these people were bringing a monetary gift to the church at Jerusalem, Paul was writing a letter to them to let them know that they were a part of the local church. Right? That's what he was doing. And it, it implies and it assumes that they were a part of that local church. He could do that. Uh, even God himself keeps a list of believers in the book of life, doesn't he? Is that not a great thought? that our names are written there. Um, Philippians 4.3 says, Indeed, true companion, I ask 
you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And God keeps track of that. Revelation 21, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the new Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so even God uh, tracks names that, that way in lists form with names written down. Another thing is the distinction of believers from the world. Um, drawing this distinction has always been God's purpose. There was a distinction between Israel and the Hittite, right? There was a distinction between Israel and the Amorite, between Israel and the Egyptian. How did, how did a person become an Israelite? So if an Egyptian just moved to Israel, was he an Israelite? No, I'm sure there was some kind of formal ceremony that would have to take place for a person to become an Israelite. And, and it just makes sense. And that distinction was all the way through. It was the reason for the ceremonial and the civil laws in the Old Testament. And these laws distinguished Israel from the nations surrounding them as a people set apart to the Lord. They were unique. And in the same sense, membership does that for us here in, in the New Testament church. Um, you could look at the appointment of leadership in the church the same way. Paul recognized the importance of having leaderships in a particular local church when he appointed elders to serve over each one. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Titus chapter 1, where Paul commands them to appoint elders over these, these local bodies. And not only the appointment of leadership, but what about accountability? And these two things go hand in hand. You, you can't avoid them in the New Testament. Turn to, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And this actually may be one of the sticking points as to why people don't join churches. It's because they don't want to be under the authority of a church leadership. But what does it say? Um, verses 17 and 18, Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And so, yeah, the question could come up, if there's no church membership, how do we know who is part of the church and who isn't? We've got people coming in and out all the time, and it's certainly a way for the leadership to recognize who they're responsible for, and for you as a member to submit yourself to that leadership under accountability when it says obey your, your leaders and submit to them. And it's certainly a way to do that. What does church membership signify? Um, what does it mean? If we, when we join the church, what happens? What, what's the big deal over it? Um, first, this really does serve a purpose. And one of them, we go back to the very beginning of what I said. At a minimum, what is a church? It's an assembly of what? Believers in Jesus Christ. So when a person becomes a member here at Fellowship Bible Church, one of the things that happens is they're asked to share their testimony and to give evidence of their salvation verbally so that we know that they understand what, the, what salvation is all about. And we've also seen evidence that that salvation is real in their life. And so it, it becomes 
a corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. Now, do we need everybody to tell us that we're saved? No, not necessarily. The Spirit of God works or, or um, bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, right? When we become saved, the, the assurance of that salvation comes from a knowledge of His Word and from, um, from the Spirit of God Himself, yes. But membership is a way for, for us as a group corporately to say, yes, this person is a Christian. We know that they're a believer. Um, and it allows for that to happen. When the church approaches membership in this way, membership can function as the church's corporate witness to the fact that the new member does indeed know Christ. Second thing is that membership signifies um, an individual commitment to mutual love and discipleship. When we join, we're saying, that's what I want to do. It doesn't mean that you can't do it without joining, but it's a, it's a formal way of saying, I am committed to this. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we are letting the leadership and the other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attending, in giving, in praying for one another, in serving. And that's what, that's what membership allows us to do. And, and when we bring people up here on the front of the platform and we extend what we call the right hand of fellowship to them as they join the church, what are they saying? Isn't that it? I love God, I am a saved person, and I am joining with you, this local church right here, to attend. I'm going to attend your services, I'm going to give regularly to this ministry, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to serve here with each other. And that's, that's the outward expression of what membership does. We increase others' expectation of us when we do that. It's harder to, to sit back and do nothing when we join because now the expectation level has been raised that we are going to do these things. It's a covenant relationship with that church and its leadership. Thirdly, and I mentioned this one already, it signifies a regular responsibility. And you're, and you're committing yourself to that. It shouldn't be viewed as a loose association or a loose affiliation. Um, that's kind of a, a self-centered way of looking at it. You know, for me to come because I want to get. It now says, I'm going to come because I want to give. I want to be a part of this. I want to I help the church grow. I want to edify and, and be a part of it. And I'm going to commit myself to carrying it out, both for and with other members in the fellowship, in the work, and in the joy that comes with it. I've probably said this already in a different way, but it's an outward show of an inward love that already exists. It's, it's like baptism. Can a person be saved without baptism? Yes. Why does God command then baptism to take place? Because it's an outward show. It's a willingness for you to submit under the obedience of that command and say, I am a believer. I am a Christian. I am united to Christ. And I'm going to get right up there in the tank and let him dunk me. And go under the water to show that I'm buried with Christ and come up out of the water to show that I'm risen with Christ. It's an outward show of something that's already happened in an, in an inward way. Same thing with communion, right? Communion is an outward show. You can remember the death and burial and resurrection of Christ without communion. You can do it every day if you want to. But God commanded us to do this outward thing so that we wouldn't forget and that we would be reminded of it. And we do it out of obedience and submission to the fact that God asked us to do it couple of illustrations maybe to help with this. Um, 
in the school, there are families who are from fellowship and there are families who are not from fellowship. The families from fellowship have submitted themselves to the leadership of the church at fellowship. The families who are not from fellowship, who come from other churches, haven't. And I'm telling you, there's a difference. When, when I have to deal with discipline issues, it is so much easier to deal with somebody who's here because they already know me, they know my heart, they know what we're trying to accomplish at the church, their goals and my goals are the same. If they're members, they've already committed to the doctrinal statement and to the, the church constitution, they know what we're about, they know why we're here, and, and they submit to the leadership uh, that I give to them. Church that's out, you know, families that come in and have kids from outside fellowship, it doesn't work that way. It's much, much more difficult because they haven't submitted themselves to our leadership. And it creates a little bit of a, um, a distinction there. And it's not that we won't welcome anybody to come into the school. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying the relationship is definitely different. Uh, what about families? Uh, this week, we've got Leanne Trepanier staying with us because her mom and dad are out uh, visiting her brother in California. Leanne is a wonderful girl. It's been a, been a joy to have you with us this week. And Leanne has eaten our food sat at our table. Uh, she's worked at, on house projects that we're, we're doing while she's there. She's slept in our beds, and she's kind of become a part of the family. But she's not. She has her own mom and dad, and I'm sure she's going to be very glad to get back in her own bed and eat her own food and be under the instruction of her own parents when they come back. You know? And so she's there, and I'm going to treat her just like she's a member of the family, but she's still not. Now, if, God forbid, her parents were not to make it home and we adopted her into our family, that would be different. Now she, she's a full-fledged member of our family. And that's what I'm saying. There's, there's, a, there's something to be said for membership because it increases this familiarity with each other and intimacy and, and allows all of these things that we've been talking about to be, to be shown outwardly. Uh, almost finished. Four reasons why we should join the church. I'll, I'll just fly through these because we're, we're getting late. One, for other people. Think about this. Non-Christians who come into our church will observe us. Non-Christian friends will observe you and how you interact with the church. Okay? If for some reason we will not join the church, what does that say? Something, either you don't agree with something that's, that's in our constitution or you are unwilling to submit to the leadership or something... And membership provides this, this outward show of unity that the church should show as a body, as a building, as a family. Um, it, and it provides a unified witness to a, a particular statement of faith, right? We have a doctrinal statement at our church, and one of the things that happens when you join is that you agree to that doctrinal statement. Say, yes, that's what I believe. That is what I believe. And that's, why I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm joining. So it, it, it encourages unity in doctrine, church covenant, um, even unity in lifestyle and how we interact together. And you don't think unsaved people can see that? Of course they can. So why join? Well, join for one reason, for their sakes. What about weaker Christians who are, who are a part of our church? God's not only concerned about our own personal walk, but, but our discipleship and effect that we have on other people. I think that this may be a whole aspect of godliness that what you might call privatized Christians don't think about much. You know, I think there's a group of people who may think that, you know, I come to the church because it benefits me, 
But part of church membership is showing that I am now willing to give of myself to them and to make the whole grow. And so um, I think members should see themselves as, as providers for people coming to serve others, not just to be served. And then join for the sake of the leadership. Like I mentioned already, it just makes it much easier to determine. We've we got flocks. Every elder is responsible for a certain number of families in the church. And membership makes that a whole lot easier for us to know, you know where people are spiritually and what they're doing. And, and, and uh, Hebrews 13, 17 again. And also related to that, if regular attenders don't join, part of joining and becoming membership, like I said, is being committed to the responsibility of giving. I can be up here and preach. Pastor Dan can be up here and preach because you give. That's the only reason we can do this and to be here regularly. And all of us benefit from that. And we come and we enjoy it. But if you're not a member and you're not committed to, like a member would be, the regular giving, how, how can we support it? We can't. And I think there's just something to be said for that. Uh, regular attenders benefit from the commitment of other people. So why not all be committed so that we can give and serve and pray regularly? Uh, second reason for the corporate health of the church, uh, we've mentioned this before, the best defense is a good offense. And if we are all committed to the same doctrinal statement, we can, by our membership and by our commitment to that statement of faith, defend the true gospel against false gospels, against false doctrine, because we're all committed to the same thing. We're not all bringing a zillion ideas to the table all the time and saying, well, I think it should be this way, and I think God really meant this when he said that. Well, we've, we've codified it already, and if, and if you agree to that, then we know that we agree, and it can be used to expose false gospels and also, obviously, to edify the church. It counters wrong individualism within the church. It helps us live out the corporate nature of Christianity as we've been reading in the New Testament. Um, the New Testament is full of the one another verses, right? Care for one another, serve one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another. And the one another verses can be lived out that way. Third reason, for your own individual health as a Christian. When you join and become a member, um, you know, we, we can't always read our own minds and motives perfectly by submitting ourselves to the people in the church and becoming that close to the, to the members of the church, we're opening ourselves up to the judgment of other people. You know, maybe we didn't look at this right, and, and they'll be able to help us out. Uh, the Bible speaks of us as sheep, right? And what do sheep tend to do? Tend to wander. They're dumb. We fall into ravines. And, and by, by being a part of the collective body, it could help serve as protection against our own lives because people will be more willing to speak to us and to encourage us and exhort us. Um, and then even our own spiritual assurance. I mean, going through the process, it makes you think through again what you believe. And it makes you share your testimony again so that you, you know, and it, and it can serve as a real assuring factor in your life. And then lastly, for God, for his own name, for his name's sake, the building up of the church is ultimately God's work, not ours. The Lord added daily the number that was being saved in Acts chapter 2. Um, when Saul was saved on that road to Damascus, G Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who was Saul persecuting? The church. Jesus Christ so closely associated himself with the church that he said, why do you persecute me? And if Jesus identified him that, himself that closely to the church, why shouldn't we? What are we afraid of? 
you know, be easy to put on programs and attract people and, and try to get people to join and do all this, but that's not what it's about. It's about living out the New Testament principles that God's laid out for us uh, in the Bible. And then lastly, joining for the, for the sake of God's cause. I mean, if we, if we really are saved and we want to see the gospel spread and we want people to be saved and, and we want the Bible to be known and God's truth, you know, we are the pillar and the ground of the, tr- of, of the truth, then why not be a part of that, an official part of that, and make it official? So remember what the church is and remember what it's not. It's not a club. It's a group of people who have, who have believed. Remember how the Bible describes the church as a body, a building, and a household. There's no church proof text for church membership, but understand that it is implied. I don't know how you can read all that and not, not get that there's, there's some formal affiliation with local churches here that's being talked about. Um, remember what church membership signifies, the endorsement of salvation, the commitment to mutual love, the commitment to regular service and prayer, an outward show of an inward love. And remember that there are good reasons to join for the sake of others, for the sake of leadership, for the sake of our own health, for the corporate health of the church, and even for God himself. So I hope that's been helpful. I hope that it gives you something to chew on. And I hope I didn't step on toes too much. But it's something that I really believe, and I, I think it's something that we should consider as a church. So let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we have had opportunity this morning to worship and fellowship, and I pray that as we head out today for um, probably family gatherings uh, that have to do with Mother's Day, just pray that you help us to continue to focus on, on who you are, and Lord, I ask that um, you would give us clarity of, of thinking about this subject of church membership, and, and uh, just thank you for giving us the New Testament, thank you for the things that we've looked at this morning and pray that, um, that they have been helpful and that you would use it in my life and the lives of everybody here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just sing one verse of uh, number 66.